Hey people, I'm Juba, a London-born, Essex-raised and Berlin-based DJ and welcome back to Series 2 of the Assurance Podcast. Last year, I released Assurance, the documentary that I made about the experiences of female DJs in Nigeria. After its release, I realised that there were so many other stories to explore and I wanted to continue the conversations that were started with the first documentary. In each episode, I'm going to be talking to inspiring women DJs in the global south and delving into their own personal journeys, their local music scenes and the impact of their social context on their careers and lives. Series 2 of the Assurance Podcast is sponsored by Adidas and Zalando as part of their Step Into You campaign, which is all about empowerment and confidently taking up space. In Ramallah, we don't have clubs. This is non-existence. There have been trials to open like a, an official nightclub. It sustained for one year or two years and it was closed at the end of the day. Why is that? Because of problems, because of so many problems, like um, it, it, mainly it's social. And then you, you'll have you'll have problems with the police. You'll have problem with uh, noise isolation. Hello, hello, people, and welcome back to the Assurance Podcast Part 2, Series 2. And thank you for joining me for this journey. And thank you for being here right now and listening in to Episode 5. Hope everyone's good anyway. And today I'm going all the way over to Palestine for a very interesting conversation today. I'm joined by Maki Makuk, who is an independent producer, lyricist, vocalist and DJ from Palestine and she's been busy in Ramallah's music scene since 2007 and she's a multi-genre artist who's influenced by genres like Afrobeats, Footwork, Levant Folk, drum and bass, techno and more and she uses her music as a means of exploring her thoughts and surroundings with a keen eye on topics such as women's rights, social and political issues in Palestine and elsewhere, sexuality, freedom of movement and thought and more. And in recent years, she's claimed her position in the electronic music scene to be one of the only female DJs, producers and rappers in Ramallah. And she DJed at the infamous, <laughs> the famous Palestine's first and only ever boiler room in 2018. Hey, Maki Makuk. Am I saying your name right? Is it Maki Makuk, Maki Makak? No, it's Maki Makuk. That's right. <laughs> Maki Makuk. I got it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, hey, Maki Makuk. And I feel like I say Ramallah wrong. How do you pronounce it properly? Uh, we say Ramallah. Okay, yeah, I get it wrong. <laughs> I definitely get it. No, no, I think this is the pronunciation for it for in other languages. In English, mainly, it's Ramallah. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a long A, but it's rather a... It's rather a shorter A, so it's Ramallah. Ramallah. Okay, to be fair, yeah, I guess with my English accent, I can't do it justice. But thank you for joining me, um, and I hope... How are you? How are you? Uh, I'm all right, I'm all right. Doing uh, the best I can at this time. Of course, I feel you, I feel you. I think we're all just trying to make it work, but obviously, I guess, uh, yeah, there's only so much we can do, eh? Yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to our conversation today and just, you know, sort of looking into your music scene, what's been going on with you and what it's like for women in the scene. So I'm sure it's going to be very, very eye-opening today for sure. Bring it on, actually. (laughs) (laughs) 
So Mackie McCook, welcome to today's podcast, as I said. And I guess um, when I start the podcast with everyone, I kind of want to get to know your journey and how you got to this point of being a DJ, being a musician that you are. So can you tell us, actually, when did you first touch a pair of decks? Well, when I started DJing is something and when I touched a pair of decks is something different because I started DJing actually using my desktop. I would bring my whole desktop to the venue because I didn't have any controllers at the time and I didn't even have a laptop. My official DJ gig probably was in 2015. And I started off using X1Z1 uh, uh, controllers, tractor controllers, and I still do actually until today. Yeah, so it was in 2015, pretty much. Okay, but when did you start kind of, um, I guess, selecting music with your... Is it When you say desktop, do you mean like your actual computer or laptop? Yeah, yeah, actually, an old PC, Pentium 4 PC. It with XP windows. <laughs> oh my god, wait, those like massive square ones, right? Like the big yeah. ones. Yeah, I still have it actually until today. I don't really use it, but I still have it. Actually, for my birthday, I went to Prague and I went to a museum. They had this sort of setup that was like a massive like desktop computer. And mm-hmm. I was like, wow, my childhood is now in a museum and it looks so old school. But it's like, I grew up with that stuff. Yeah, I still have it actually. I, I turn it off just to get it going every year, like once or twice. Just to make sure it's still on, you know, so, but it's still working, actually. It's much better than any other technology, to be honest. I mean, yeah, the thing is, it will probably outlast all of our laptops put together and all of our new phones, because I feel like stuff back in the day wasn't just made to last longer. Yeah, definitely. It's not, this is a a marketing strategy, like not to have it last. Mm, Definitely. (laughs) Programmed obsolescence. Wait, does it have a floppy disk? Yeah, 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 it does, but it doesn't work. It hasn't been working for a very long time. Wow, I feel like a floppy disk is a vintage item. But actually, do you know what? Like, I'm not going to satisfy my interest in vintage technology. <laughs> Today we're talking about <laughs> DJing. Um, when did you start, like, with the sort of um, selecting music? And how long did it take from that to progress to you actually touching DJ equipment? Um, well, I can go back as far as the mid-90s, to be honest, when I was a child, you know? Oh, wow. I was always obsessed with collecting music, you know? And I had a tape recorder and... Uh, I, I was listening to anything that I could find on my family cassettes and vinyls. And I used to use the old tape recorder to make new mix cassettes of my va- favorite tracks, like get them from other cassettes. But this was something for me, not for anybody, you know. And then through my university years, uh, between 2007 and 2011, I started going, you know, going out with friends and we would go to bars and restaurants and... Um, I've always had an interest if I had the space to ask, you know, do requests on the jukebox slash computer to put music on the weekends and things like that. And I had few friends who were producers and DJs and they threw a few parties and Mm. I started basically selecting music in houses and house parties and bars like this just for the fun of it, you know. Because I always felt like if a track is playing, I always thought that I, I know what needs to be played next after this one. <laughs> you know, I had that feeling all the time. Mm-hmm. And through these years, uh, 2007 to 2011, I was developing my interest in, in actually making music. And I was going out and doing jam sessions and meeting with people who do hip hop and electronic music and acoustic music and things like that. There were friends who were playing and DJing and a couple of my girlfriends actually one night were like, okay, 
we would like to put up a playlist, you know, and just book a day for us. That none of us are DJs, and let's just select together. And uh, I knew a little bit of mixing at the time. I was using uh, virtual DJ, you know, like mixing tracks on the mouse. Sure. So we would select together, and I would try to mix you know, the track to the best of my abilities. And after that, um, I started actually playing with my friends who were DJing. None of them were really, really old DJing. Like they haven't been all DJing for a very long time, but I just hopped in and we said, okay, let's just organize parties since people already like, many of the people we know, they they like our selections. So let's just start throwing parties on the weekends. And uh, I started just putting myself into lineups you know, even if it, if I was just opening. <laughs> yeah, literally just just putting yourself in there. That's no, that's cool. It feels like there's a real progression. Like music selection has been something you've been doing for such a long time. So it's almost like a natural progression to become a DJ, which mm-hmm. is kind of the opposite to me because I feel like I decided one day that I want to become a DJ. Like it had never really been something that I'd even considered as a career. Mm-hmm. I actually spent more time dancing and like kind of enjoying music as yeah a dancer. Yeah. And then I guess one day I was just like, I want to DJ, I want to have fun. So it's just interesting seeing, uh, you know, someone who literally was like cutting tapes from a young age and like selecting all the time to someone like myself who just sort of was like, I want to do this one day. So yeah, I love hearing these sorts of journeys into music. And so you mentioned your first gig, like tell us what your first gig was like. Well, actually, my first gig was with a couple of friends uh, who were DJing and it was actually uh, a dub and reggae and jungle and Arabic uh, percussions night. Ooh, that sounds really fun. Yeah, I remember playing a reggae set, actually. It might sound a bit typical. We called it Concrete Jungle, but actually we related a lot to the name at uh, at the time because uh, Ramallah at the time, around 2015, Ramallah at the time... It was going, it's still going into like a crazy wave of construction. Since the the invasion of the Second Intifada, there was a whole military invasion that it left the city in rubble, basically. Oh, wow. Economically, it was really, really doing bad after it calmed down a bit after the Second Intifada and the military, the Israeli military withdrawal to make people like feel a bit better, they opened up the banks for investments, you know, just go take loans and let's just start doing construction. And at that time, they started to build like without even like an idea to how to plan the city. They just built residential and commercial buildings like in an insane way that we started to lose a lot of the green areas in the in the city Mm. and the construction sites were just brutal. And they were even tearing down old buildings that actually had the identity of the city as a, as an mm. old city, you know. So we were actually pissed. And that's why we named our party Concrete Jungle. We had a lot of fun in the party. I was really, really cool. <laughs> this is really um, interesting to me. And I guess we're going to talk about society a lot more in a second. But just that way the invasion, the conflict has impacted the the architecture the landscape and that impacted like the night that you made and yeah I don't know there's a lot of sort of depth to it it's not just like a party it's like a real reflection or commentary of what's going on around you Mm -hmm. and sorry there's a word you use and I don't know what it means and I'm sure some listeners may not know you said the second um intifada yeah what sorry say it again intifada and what does that mean 
Intifada literally means uprising. Okay, okay, okay. So through the Palestinian history with colonization and occupation, we had many main events, but there were two events. It was like a, a popular uprising, basically, yeah, where sure. everybody went to the streets and there started to, you know, going clashes, boycotts. And it was like nationwide kind of thing against the occupation, against the military and things like that. So... There was one that was in 1987. The second one was in 2001. Okay. It followed a series of events where, you know, like the pot is boiling and at some point it just explodes. It boils over. Definitely. I mean, that, of, that yeah. often seems to be the case, especially looking out and looking in. It seems like there's always a boiling point that comes. Um, yeah. And I want to explore that. So I think it actually makes sense to go into the next section now because we've definitely spoken about your first gig and your like you touching decks for the first time. So let's uh, look more into like Palestine and like your society, the music scene and more. Maki Maku, we spoke about you touching, I guess touching decks, but more like your computer, vintage technology, Mm -hmm. um, your first club night. That was also a commentary on what's going on around you. So tell us, you know, Palestine, obviously, especially in recently, the whole world was basically watching what was going on in Palestine and Sheikh Jarrah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, give us an an idea of like, I guess, you know, what is what is the current situation like? What is the feels like? I mean, how are things? Well, you know, Palestine is a complex place by all meaning to be honest it's uh it's ironic it's very very simple in its living standards yet so complicated in its political social and spiritual and economical ways you know so much is going on as usual you know uh it seems like it's static right now like there's some nothing is going on but so much is going on and nothing is much is changing it's just that palestine is not in the news is not as much as it was a few months ago Mm -hmm. but Palestine has been under colonialist military rule for over 70 years now. And and the society is very, very defragmented politically and socially. And the, the current situation is that people face a lot of challenges for stability and freedom. On a psychological level, the general sense is that people aren't happy. There isn't much of a leadership. You know, the day-to-day life is that people do go to their job. That's pretty much it. We don't really have a sense of public space that much. The The situation is, is very, very tense. It's always been tense. And now it's, you know, it's like those moments where you feel the general sense is that, okay, um, there's nothing we can do at the moment except except get back to our lives, you know? But you feel things building up again. You you know, when you walk in, in the street, you know the days when people aren't feeling good. You can feel the tension, you know, that kind of thing. So much bullshit, to be honest, is going on, like, uh, on social and political levels. We have a problem of conservatism. We have a problem with the, with the occupation. Ramallah maybe feels a little bit like a bubble, if if you are inside it, because there is just so much going on inside the city that if you don't go outside the city, you'll just hear everything from the news or from people around you about what's going on in other cities and other villages. There is always demonstrations. There is always people getting killed and put in jail. And, and uh, there isn't much freedom, to be honest. Well, here's the thing. Like Ramallah is a, is a melting pot kind of city. 
Uh, it is a small city that is forced to grow very, very rapidly. And because a lot of people come from different places to find better opportunities, education and jobs, it has more money than other cities, like in services and things like that. And a tiny bit extra social freedom. Yet it is a tense city in terms of being expensive, comparing with other Palestinian cities and in the so-called West Bank and Gaza Strip. But nonetheless, it is a city trying, despite everything, to be an eco-friendly, aware city somehow and, and open for cultural, cultural exper- experiment. That doesn't prevent problems to escalate like on socially. What you're saying is really hard for me to comprehend um, how it is to have like this sort of day-to-day life contradicted with the constant state of like as you say like colonization and tension that you live under Mm -hmm. without trying to like sort of paint a sob story and make it all kind of like heavy and sad but yeah I don't know it's just like life must go on but (laughs) when you're living in a state that's been in a state of conflict and occupation for like 70 years and you're recently just came out of a really like internationally recognized I don't know what to call it, whether it's conflict or like, what's even the word? Like, what words do you use for that situation? It really is hard to comprehend, like, um, the fact that also, you you know, you probably do have normal lives, people going to work, watching TV, um, you know, painting their nails and making things up, um, cooking food, having family parties. Oh, yeah, definitely. Also, yeah, at the same time, there is like this, it's probably the most tense area or one of the most tense areas in the world that we and we can't ignore it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, there are positives and negatives living here and, well, everywhere you go, really. But we try our best to acknowledge them both and find ways to get through the negatives and focus on the positives. And at the end of the day, you've got your family, you've got your friends, and you try to always push each other towards their goals, you know. Uh, It's definitely not easy, but you know, focusing on the good traditions and doing our best to let to let go of old bad habits, you know, that could get us somewhere, I I believe, you know. Mm. Yeah, that's the thing. No matter where, like, we are in the world, there's some places where there's, like, constant conflicts. There's some places where there's seemingly constant peace. But either way, people live and exist in those spaces. And there's, like, long lives I had and all the emotions that you get in like Switzerland, you'll get in Palestine and the Congo, you know? So I guess no matter where you are, you kind of make it happen. Um, But obviously there's some places where you kind of live under a constant state of like awareness and it's just, yeah, it's, it's intense. I mean, it's, I mean, it's very interesting talking to you, um, but wow. Yeah. I I really, I can't imagine, but I also don't want to patronize you and be like, it must be so hard for you because also I don't know what your reality is. And you know, you you look fine to me. So yeah. As I said, you know, you you have the the good things and the bad things going on in your life, you know, and sometimes the bad things hit you and you're crippled for a few days or maybe a month or so, but then you get back on your feet again and you keep doing what you're doing, you know? As long as you have a support system, it's it's good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's good when people are there for each other. Definitely. That's that's important. That really is important. On a micro level, on a macro level, it gets us through a lot of stuff. And um, talk to me now, Mm -hmm. going off what we've discussed about Palestine, about society. Tell us about the music scene um, where you live in Ramallah. Like, I want to know what's going on. I can start with that. There's not much of a scene as people may think there is. There's a difference between a scene and a community and having a scene, it means that things are popping all the time, and but it's not. 
you know. So the general sense of Ramallah is that it's a, as I said before, it's a melting pot. So it is, it does have different cultures from different Palestinian cities and villages and things like that. And it's a city that has a lot of coffee shops and bars and restaurants and institutes and cultural centers. All these places represent different types of music genres for its audiences, basically. So whether it be just putting music lists for customers or inviting DJs and music performers to present their selections and work. In Ramallah, we don't have clubs. This is non-existence. There have been trials to open like a, an official nightclub. It sustained for one year or two years and it was closed at the end of the day. Why is that? Because of problems, because of so many problems, like um, it, it, mainly it's social. And then you, you'll have you'll have problems with the police. You'll have problem with uh, noise isolation when you get out of, especially if it's a bar. Especially if it's a bar, like if it serves alcohol and people go out at the de- at the end of the night, you know, happy, hugging each other, walking in the street, and there's a pack of guys standing outside who hasn't been able to get into a part the party they'll start harassing these people coming out and you know name calling the women and the men and problems happen easily and when the police start to get involved in such problems eventually the police they they decide to shut down the places rather than find solutions or security for these places socially it's not very acceptable you know so it's really again Ramallah is sort of like a bubble and inside Ramallah, there are bubbles. So you can say it's more little communities inside the bigger community rather than it is a scene, in a way. Yeah, maybe every mm. once in a while when we had a lot of parties going on, maybe, yeah, it started to become a little bit of a scene. You know, at the time when the boiler room came, the period that was prior to the boiler, boiler room, um, it was very vibrant. It was a bit you know, looking like a scenery kind of thing. But uh, but it's not really a scene. See, this is interesting for me in various ways. And I know, um, actually, this reminds me of that situation that happened last year with DJ Sama. If I'm not mistaken, she DJed outside a mosque or near a sacred venue or something, and she was arrested, or maybe that's not the case. But yeah, maybe you can explain it better. Um Okay, so basically she was doing something for Beatport, so shooting in, in different uh, historical or cultural places around Palestine. And uh, she got permission from the ministry to shoot in those places. I honestly don't know the details of everything. I wasn't involved in it, but it went viral. And I met with Saman and we've talked a bit about it. And um, basically she got the permission, but at the end of the day, like the place that she did the party in, in next to Jericho City, it was what they call a maqam. It's like a holy site. Mm. Not necessarily all of it, but I mean, there is a like a place where they believe that Moses has passed there or died there, or I don't know, which is a, a very, very questionable historically uh, and geologically and geographically and everything. But, but, you know, there is a mosque inside this area, but she didn't do the thing in the mosque. There is a, a yard outside, and this is where they set up their DJ booth and they did the event there. 
it was a sensitive place to throw a party at, definitely. Well, I mean a set because it wasn't like, it wasn't really officially a party. It was a guest list of certain people who were invited to just, you know, be an audience when they shoot the set. Even though she got the permission, it was a sensitive place to throw a party at because that moved the sentiments of people like wildly. Because, you know, maqam is usually some a place where Uh, somebody religious was buried or a holy pilgrimage place to go to, you know? Mm. And people didn't exactly understand that it's just music. Many people thought, oh, they're just devil worshippers going to tarnish the place and, you know, things Mm. like that. So it was risky. For sure it was risky. But you're saying that since then it's kind of like had a knock-on effect. You know, this situation really, really affected the way people perceive these kind of, between quotations, foreign genres of music and parties of this sort. Some got put in jail, it went viral. After that, the aftermath, other things started popping out and other artists trying to organize gigs and parties started to be attacked, like verbally. And if they had any relation to what happened in Nabi Musa. And that gave a big excuse, to be honest, for conservatives to, to you know, see, we told you, we told you not to, not to make them have parties, you know, they're ruining the society, they're doing this and that, and now you see they're throwing parties in mosques, which was not the case. So it did put an eye, it did put an eye, and it made the whole party scene slash community slash uh, different music genres, it did put it under fire a bit. Because right now, okay, the situation with COVID, it's, uh, it's a bit difficult to do like... Uh, big gatherings and things like that. But the thing is that the country isn't closed. Um, Nobody's wearing masks. Everybody is outside. Half the people aren't even vaccinated. I'm sure much more. But COVID is also being used to, you know, close up these spaces. And from what I've been hearing that I know some artists or DJs or like parties are being cancelled or not being given permission Mm. by the police to throw these parties because you need to get permission to do them. Mm. Yeah, I definitely think that COVID is a big excuse that a lot of governments and police forces are using to just basically oppress or limit freedoms for sure. And I guess once again, I don't want to come across as being patronising because I'm not sitting here feeling sorry for you. But it is really insightful to hear the difference between, you know, almost the struggle to be allowed to party and the social obstacles that you come across in places like Ramallah compared to Berlin, which is like literally, it's a big nightclub. <laughs> it's a big club. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you know, I've here we there. complain about noise complaints and how noise complaints are basically, you know, threatening some clubs. And we complain about gentrification, how it's threatening clubs. But, you know... Mm. I guess it's a society where, or at least a city where, for a large part, I think, even comparing to London, there is a respect and a certain reverence for nightclub spaces and just sort of like electronic music spaces. And even though there Mm. are attempts to, you know, limit some parties and stuff, there's a desire to protect them. So it's very Mm. um, eye-opening to hear you talking about, you know, how conservatism, how conservative, I can't say the word, how conservatism, such a hard word is threatening um conservatism oh yeah there you go that's the word is threatening your ability to like host these parties and how this situation with summer is using an excuse to you know limit other parties and and covid is used as an excuse even though people aren't even following the rules um so yeah i guess um it isn't it's not easy to be a dj right now to be an artist right now i guess um in ramallah 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, it, it took a long time to build up, you know, all of this movement to be able to do parties and things like that. I mean, again, we have different genres of music that is being played. And even Arabic pop music parties are kind of being restricted at the moment. Mm. But finally, I find like, I mean, I wouldn't dream to do the party that I do here in Ramallah and other cities in Palestine, you know. In Ramallah, it is, it is a bit more acceptable as long as you go with the, with the safety and the rules and everything, you can, you can manage to do something. Mm. But other cities, they wouldn't even accept you, like especially if it's, um, if it's a COVID party. In other cities, the Hayya is a, a Palestinian music genre. It's all guys party and mm. it's like crazy loud. Everybody's jumping. It's going crazy. And these parties, they do them like in the street. They can they put a stage and they close the transportation just to throw a party. Mm-hmm. But it's only men because you always say co-ed. Co-ed is like mixed gender, no? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So those parties are only for men. Yeah. And the women have to just like watch outside. Yeah, they cannot even stand outside and watch. They can, if they are in a high building, they can look out from the window and watch. Bloody hell. And they want it. You know what? On that note, I want to actually talk about um, women in the music scene then. Um, it's interesting that like in some cities, you can't even have mixed gender parties. Uh, that's, I guess, a concept that I've never actually come across. Um, but tell us about what it's like for women in the music scene. You said in your bio, you're like one of the only female DJs, rappers, vocalists. So what is the situation for gender representation on your dance floors, behind your decks? Let me know. I'm sorry, I just realised, I said, what's the gender representation in the dance floors? And you just said you don't have clubs. But I mean, in your music scene, however you kind of like interpret that question. Okay, I'm going to speak for myself because it's really different from one artist to another and their type of audiences and things like that, you know. But for me, I think there is some sort of a balance. Naturally, men go out more than women like to these kinds of parties and things like that you you find more men than women but i can say that in my parties it is a it is almost a 50 50 thing if we're speaking about the dance floor of course but when it comes to how many women doing being behind the decks or in the studio really not many not many and there are many reasons um socially by default it's a big problem and economically by all means. Uh, there aren't many resources and opportunities uh, in these fields. Like the artistic fields in general here, you don't, really have a, you don't really have a scene, you don't really have an industry. We don't exactly have multidisciplinary music and arts education even, like to even go into these fields. Most of us in the, in the field are self-taught. When I'm talking about electronic music in particular or DJing, you know, the thing is that many of the female artists, they end up facing the same challenges as men in the field, but added to that, that they are women. Here being in one field or another kind of determines your social status somehow. So I understand why some women or even men don't choose certain fields. Like, if you want to be a DJ, that means, like, okay, where are you going to play? What are the spaces that you have for DJing? Also, if you're a music selector, because it's really different. For me, like, I listen to Arabic music and uh, pop, pop music every now and then, but my cup of tea is not these types of genres. I go more folk, I go more like interna- like genres from all over the globe. So I had to choose 
between being a wedding DJ where I could get a lot of money mm. or do what I love doing and not have that many opportunities and spaces. Interesting. It's really complicated. I understand the fear uh, that many women have from entering the field. I know now that there are more women than there used to be when I started. That's for sure. That's for sure. But I also know that there are ones who sort of quit. They wanted to do this, but also they were afraid. They didn't want to be known. They were simply afraid of how the society will perceive them, the names that they're going to be called or that they're not going to be taken seriously. The art fields, they're not taken very seriously here. When you don't have many spaces to do like the kind of music that I do uh, the, and the genres that I play, eventually you'll have only few spaces to do them and certain times per week and day. We did parties during the day and I loved those like so much. And I enjoyed playing sets during the day. And I wish there were more of them. But most of the time we had to do parties in the evening. And this also socially is trouble. To end up being late, you know, for a woman. It's not very comfortable. You need to be surrounded by a support system because you never know what happens. Everything that you said was so, so, I guess, honest and critical. And it's a sentiment that has definitely been mirrored by a lot of the DJs I've spoken to, especially what you were saying about being out late at night. Um, in the documentary that I did, like, it was just the overriding sentiment that as a woman, being a DJ, there's like a limit to, you know, your ability to be a DJ when you're in a society that actually, I guess, demonizes women who are out late at night. Um, mm -hmm. And also, as you said, like access, it reminds me of what I was talking about with Juliana or Juliana from Colombia, that access to education, access to these sorts of spaces is limited for everyone. So then when you're in a society where as by default of your gender, you are almost, you are at a disadvantage. Not almost, you are at a disadvantage. It just means that mm. whilst the guys are also disadvantaged, you are double disadvantaged because, you know, you, you don't have the access by default of being born a woman. Um, and I'm sure there are people who are, you know, able or trying to sort of subvert that, but it does have an impact upon, you know, what these spaces look like and how many people are able to also be um, instrumental behind the scenes and like making the music DJ and not just the ones who are on the dance floors. Um, it just it's a wider conversation about society and access for women and how like the lack of access just impacts our abilities to be in various industries, including music. Oh yeah, definitely. It's it's really a lot about the safety of spaces like these. You know, when you throw a party, like sort of like a club party, it never had a good reputation here. You know, and. We've always tried to to make the safest place possible, but we couldn't. We always have the risk of something happening, mm. and especially for, for women, mm -hmm. you know, somebody to harass them or even if it's like, uh, you know, behind the scenes kind of harassment. Sometimes it ends up being your, your guy buddies. There is so much more that needs to be, there are a lot of discussions that need to happen and a lot of things that need to that need to be corrected once you do these kinds of things. Definitely. Um, there's so much to talk about in this um, topic. I mean, just the whole conversation has been so, um, so eye-opening so far. Maybe there are improvements being made in terms of representation, but it does strike me as there's a lot of work to be done across the board, um, but also this appertains to the dance floor as well. Two of the Assurance Podcast is sponsored by Adidas and Zalando as part of their Step Into You campaign. 
This is all about women taking up space and self-empowerment by empowering others. Mackie McCook, what a conversation we're having today. Honestly, it's just been eye-opening to say the least. I'm trying not to say interesting again, but I will say it again. It's been very interesting. Um, And as I mentioned, this podcast is sponsored by Adidas and Zalando as part of their Step Into You campaign. And so in this part, I focus on like confidence and how you've been able to take up space. So to those listening and who want to kind of, I guess, get some inspiration from you, tell us how have you sort of taken up space, occupied ground and like been Mackie McCook? Well, basically, I think it's just pushing myself and keeping on practicing and um, keeping on trying to be as much disciplined as I could. You've got to keep pushing yourself towards your dreams and be smart about it. Don't use your freedom for granted. Always have a higher goal. Be organized. Give yourself a break and don't be too hard on yourself. Find what you love doing and focus on being better at it, you know? When you think you don't have the space or the resources, make it. Come up with it. DIY. Use whatever whatever you have. Just, just do it. As I started DJing, I didn't have a laptop. Nobody wanted to lend me their laptop. I didn't have a deck. I just took my desktop to the party and I was like, hell, I will I will DJ on the mouse. It's okay. And even when nobody wanted me to play at a peak time, I just worked and worked and, and you know, proved myself, proved to myself first and to others that I can do it, you know. If there is something you feel that is missing in your life and you feel some kind of space is not there, I'm sure there are people who share the same view with you and you can get together and, and just do it. Mm. I feel like there's a certain spirit of resilience that you're talking about, which I really admire. Um, But then I also like that you mentioned about giving yourself a break as well. Oh, definitely. So I think that's also very important. Do you know what? Funny enough, I love that you said that because I was talking to my friend um, this week and I was like, I'm feeling hustle fatigue. (laughs) Maybe it's a term that I've coined, but it's like the fatigue of constantly trying to hustle and constantly trying to make it work. And you know what you're saying, like if you can't find a way, you don't have a way at this moment, you make one. But then I like also that you said you should rest because there is that balance between constantly trying to push and make things happen and make things work. And also seeing the like fruits of your labor, but also acknowledging that you can get tired. So it's you, you need to rest as well. Uh, definitely, definitely. Actually, it's funny that that COVID came at a time when I was actually feeling that fatigue. You know, <laughs> I mean, I was pushing and pushing and pushing and I didn't realize that I wasn't getting any rest. I wasn't even taking the time for myself to care for myself and, and you know, just focus on my home surroundings. I was always out, you know, doing my hustles. Okay, let's do a party here. Let's do what are we doing next week? And and let's design this poster. Let's do this. And I, I never gave myself a break, to be honest. And one of these realizations just... You know, as an artist, you need your time to reflect and you need to evaluate. Take stock as well. Yeah, evaluate, take stock. I I had a similar situation a while back when I was just like doing a million things at the same time. And it got to a point where I just constantly felt confused. It's like I couldn't even read properly because like my brain was so confused. So, yeah, I mean, we're not machines. We actually need to take stock and, and step back. I think I've been talking to a lot of people in my surroundings about the concept of burning out. Yeah, um, And it's also such a creative thing as well to burn out because you're doing so many things so yeah man like I think that hustle that resilience that pushing forward but also allowing yourself to take a break um not only when COVID forces you to stop because you have no more gigs so no I I like that what you've been saying and also to kind of go on like what motivates you what inspires you 
Well, <laughs> my motivation actually comes from my realiza- realization that this is what I love doing, no matter how hard it gets. You're living in circumstances that may not always, many times you won't feel motivated to do anything. So many times I felt helpless. I realized that the best thing that could take over lack of motivation is actually discipline. I know it's hard and I've been having a really hard time with it, to be honest. I'm not very disciplined. I've always been wild and free-spirited. I fought a lot of, I fought a lot of the discipline in my life before. I'm starting to realize again that if I don't feel motivated to do something, my motivation should be my discipline that this is what I love doing. And also there are things that you need to do even if you don't feel like doing it at that moment. Mm. You know, you cannot wait for the monkey brain to set aside and, you know, the the serious brain to take over. My motivation also is, is always my curiosity to learn about new things all the time, even if it's not directly associated with my line of work, you know, or the things that I do. There is always something new to learn. Mm. And also I'm very, very inspired by by stories and people who find the courage to go through rough times and come out stronger and more determined. I'm inspired by those who help others and who care for the environment. I'm in, I'm inspired by acts of kindness. This all falls back into what I love doing, you know. That is a really beautiful set of inspirations. I think discipline is a very interesting one because I think these days, I don't know, there's a popular narrative about being kind to yourself. And I think sometimes, in my opinion anyway, people sometimes conflate being kind of yourself to like not necessarily being disciplined and just basically allowing yourself to do what you want to do, even though what you want to do may not always be good for you. Um, so I like that idea that like sometimes, yeah, obviously sometimes listen to yourself and if you don't want to do anything, then just like chill or if you want to do the thing that isn't necessarily uh, meant to be good for you, sometimes just doing it makes you feel better. But um, actually having discipline and like having that structure ultimately is to your benefit and will serve you. And yeah, you know what you're saying about people who care, just caring. Like I really appreciate like real humanness, like helping each other, like just seeing someone and wanting to help them because they are just a human being. I think that's really important. And obviously the environment, I mean, I'm I'm probably one of those guilty DJs who really cares about the environment, but then also sometimes uh, resist talking about it too much because I know that as my industry is very environmentally un- unfriendly and touring as a DJ is very environmentally unfriendly. But I think, yeah, looking after our environment is like the most important thing we have to do. No, I really think that's a really important set of um, points you raised. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I learned the hard way. We shouldn't take our freedom for granted. Definitely, you have to be kind to yourself, you know. And and again, when I say discipline, I don't mean that you need to be a robot, you know, at the same time. You need to appreciate your your humanship. But I mean, balance, a bit of balance, you know. Definitely. I mean, when you're tired, take a break, but don't take a... Uh, two years break when you have a track that you need to finish, you know? So, and this is something that that I tell myself all the time, you know, because I'm also a perfectionist in my, in my own way. And I have my doubts also, you know? Mm. So at least, okay, just do uh, just half an hour more and then take a five minute break and 
you know? Yeah. I think, for example, for myself, I'm trying to give myself weekends because I can honestly work all week, seven days a week. So I'm trying to be like, no, on the weekends, it's okay to socialize. And when I do that, I feel great. So, no, I like that. Balance, yeah. man. Equilibrium. Yin and yang. The yeah. scales. Um, I'm a Libra, so I guess I am all about balance, apparently. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, five. When's your birthday? Uh, it was actually two days ago on the 10th. October. Happy birthday. Oh no, we spoke about this. And my birthday is the 7th of October. So happy birthday. <laughs> yeah, to you too. Yay. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Okay, cool. So um looking at your context, are there any people or organizations or collectives that are doing really great things for gender diversity and inclusion in the music scene or just generally throughout music? There are some institutes who work on this, and there are also individuals who carry on initiatives to bring more gender diversity in the field. Definitely not a lot, but it is happening. There are like official institutes like uh, Al-Qattan Foundation and Sakakini Cultural Centers. They center, they are some of the people who are, who at least host events of, you know, having more gender diversity. There's also Al-Qaus as well. It's a bit under fire, but it's a, it's a queer society uh, organization. They're not specifically in arts, but they they work on different things. They even make parties every now and then. It's individual women who are trying to push others, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in their in their positions inside institutes or other places who are trying to bring more diversity to the field. Mm-hmm. Also, there is a difference between wanting women to be in the field just for covering up quotas mm-hmm. and actually empowering them to be present and realize themselves, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, this has happened before where you have people just invite you just because you're a woman. So people get more excited to come and things like that. But nobody really, really cared about helping you out to get better at what you do. You know, definitely. That's a, such an ongoing thing with diversity. Like, you know, bringing people of color, bringing black people, but there's nothing in place to actually make it a, a safe and conducive environment for them to be there. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it also doesn't have to always be like a big collective. As you say, there's people who are just working in companies that want to do good work, and that's important too. Um, and yeah. to quickly like look back on your career, what lessons do you think you've learned? What knowledge would you impart to your younger self um, <laughs> when she was carrying her desktop to to bars and clubs? Um, and play music well (laughs) um i've learned not to use my freedom or lack of freedom for that matter for granted to always be on the lookout and do my best not to make the same mistakes over and over again to give myself the time to heal and not ignore my intuition Uh, to keep practicing and bring myself to a higher level of discipline when you choose to be free, you can end up choosing things that may hurt you. Keep an eye for red flags. Aim for the best results. Keep at projects and finish them. Don't be afraid. Definitely don't be afraid. Uh, don't be too hard on yourself. Tell what's in your heart. Breathe. Drink water. Take breaks and do your tasks. And put goals to to accomplish on a daily basis. Mm. And definitely there are some people who will want to use you till those apart and protect yourself and your energy. Wow, that's a that's a list and a half. Um, the daily yeah. goals is an interesting one. I make annual goals, but I think daily goals, because I feel like daily goals also make you feel good. Actually, I have like a list of things. I have like a daily list of things I want to do. Even simple things like check my emails or like, 
I don't know, um, clean my windows. Because then at the end of the day, you get that nice little feeling when you tick off your list and you're like, okay, cool, I did that. Even if it's a small thing. Or there might be things that you didn't do and you're like, okay, that's the top of my list for tomorrow. Exactly. You speak a lot about freedom. It it shows that freedom is a very important concept to you. So definitely it's something that we should never take for granted. Yes, definitely. Mackie Makuk, we are coming to the end of this episode, which I have just honestly found so insightful. Um, So thank you for being here, but we're not done yet. And so this section is kind of a closing off. It's reflective, um, contemplative, 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 contemplative. I really don't Mm. know how to say words anymore. (laughs) But can you share with us, um, first of all, a no moment when you doubted your decision to become a DJ? My no moments, to be honest, there are a lot. There is not like a certain event by itself that I had a no moment. My no moment or moments, they came always from doubting my abilities. The question is the answer, to be honest. Your question is the answer. Mm-hmm. For me, I when I put uh, when I put thought into it, I thought I couldn't do it, and that I'm not good enough, that I would never make it big, that being a DJ might not be the right choice. So it really came from doubts. It happened a lot. When I was selecting building up for a DJ set, for example, sometimes I had those moments, you know, like, no, no, like, what am I going to play? I don't know what's going on, you know? And when you're under pressure, I feel that uh, sometimes it's doubting myself, actually, my, my no moments. Um, I always get out of it, which is good, but, mm. you know, I have mm. those moments. I haven't had anyone turn the question on me, so that's. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I feel like I've been. I'm sorry, been I, tricked. I did that. I feel like I've been defeated at my own game. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I did that. But when I thought about it, this is what I felt like. When was mm-hmm. a moment that I had a no moment? I realized that there wasn't a specific moment. It was like a um, a constant thing happening every once in a while. Like I can't do it. Definitely. You know? No, it's all good. Yeah. Like I like it. You turned the question on me, and you made me think about it um, in a different way. And I actually appreciate that. So it is an it's an ongoing thing as well. Like a lot of DJs, they said the same thing. It's not a one off moment. There are some moments that are stand out more than others, but often it's like that constant doubt, that sort of like devil on your shoulder that's telling you that you know you made the wrong decision. But um, I guess yeah, can you share a yes moment or maybe yes moments plural? when you knew you'd made the right decision to be a DJ? Yeah, my yes moment or moments is always when I'm on stage. It's uh, when I'm in the middle of my set and I see people having a really good time, dancing and laughing and cheering and letting their energy flow when the tracks I'm playing puts me and everybody else in one body of energy, Mm. to be honest. These are like the best yes moment for me. Like, yes, this is why I do this. Mm -hmm. This is exactly why I do this. I know the feelings like, you know, you just kind of look up and you're like, yeah, this is why I chose to do this because this is that feeling that I get that like other things can't give me, you know? Yeah. But I also, I know you're not only a DJ as well, to be fair, but I guess because it's a DJ based podcast, we talk about that. But I guess generally in music, like the whole thing is probably very rewarding for you anyway. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Mm. Whether it be like when I have uh, performances or DJ sets, 
I have that feeling always. Mm-hmm. Before I go on stage, maybe it's my no moments. Like, no, I won't make it. I'm nervous. I don't know <laughs> what. But when, when I'm on stage, it's the yes moment always, you know? Yeah. And definitely yes moment is times, well, when people come up to you afterwards and you end up talking with people and have a good, good time. And, and then after that, when you go into the evaluation on how you want to make yourself better mm. you know and make your performance better and all of that and there is more to do yeah this is definitely a yes for me that I'm doing what I love to do that's cool like that evaluation like how can I make myself better what can I do um what's next that's really nice it's like something to to aim towards um and the final question of this podcast so can you share with us a message that you received preferably from a woman but obviously not exclusively um that empowered you and just made you feel really good about yourself as a dj as a performer as a person as an artist um there was a techno rave party that was going on and i was set on the lineup to play somewhere in the middle So this is the usually the time when people have showed up and the dance floor there is a lot of people. Okay, I'm a bit flexing with the story to be honest, but <laughs> it, it really it really stayed with me. It was few years back and it stayed with me. An hour or two before the party has started, um the organizer came up to me apparently him and the other DJs which happened to all be men at the time. They were discussing amongst themselves and the organizer came up to me and he said that they moved my set and they all agreed to move my set to put it the first set to open up. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is usually the time where there aren't people in the party anyway. Like the doors are barely open. I wasn't very happy about it, but I, I accepted nonetheless and told him I was totally okay with that. Another time I was kind of new. And at that moment, I probably have doubted myself. The party happened here, but we had uh, like a big group of guests from Berlin who were coming. Some are DJs, some are artists, organizers. And and at the end of the party, one of the guests, a German woman, she approached me and she whispered in my ear. And she was like, listen, I know they changed your time to play in the opening. And this wasn't fair of them to do. But I have to tell you that I enjoyed your set the most. It wasn't repetitive and it went super smooth. Keep it up. Nice. I love that. For me, that that meant a lot, a lot, a lot to me, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Because I was doubting that I wasn't playing. One of the excuses that they gave me that they were going to move me to the front is that they thought that maybe my set wasn't going to be hard enough for the people, you know. And the funny part is that when my original slot came and uh, of course, no, no shade on the DJ that played, but people were leaving the dance floor. Interesting. So that moment for me was really, really important. I love that story because we all know that the warm up set is notoriously, it's even notoriously hard, but also let's be honest now, usually the warm up set is for the one that is like least anticipated. It's not the headline set. So they were expecting you to like maybe not move the room as much, not be like the go-to or like, I don't want to say the best. It's not about the best, but to be like the sort of underdog. Um, but it kind of was a bit of an underdog mm-hmm. story because actually your set stood out to that one person or to how many people, you know, you held your own and you did your thing. And sometimes like, I think sometimes I've definitely had some sets where I've come after someone and I've been playing a certain type of music and I'm like, crap, I can't go after this person because my music's like so different to theirs. But sometimes it actually works to your favor. Yeah, 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 definitely. Mm. Definitely. 
Yeah, I know that feeling. Yeah, yeah. It's everybody, every DJ's feeling. Definitely, <laughs> so, definitely. But it's just like, hold yeah. your own, do your thing, and you exactly. should actually be fine. Um, So I definitely agree with that. And wow, we've actually come to the end of this podcast. I love that we ended on that note of you kind of like holding your own, um, standing your ground in your own way during your opening set and actually having a great time and someone actually coming up to you and telling you how great your set was. And it's just been such a conversation today, honestly. I've I've been leaning over my mic. I've got a bad back. <laughs> I'm tired. I'm oh, hungry. tell me about it. <laughs> Same. <laughs> but it's been so worth it because honestly, it's been so interesting. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for these questions. I loved every bit of it. And uh, it was really good to to meet you and talk with you. Definitely. I honestly want to like be able to meet all of the DJs that I've spoken to in person. I think it'll be so interesting and just so, I don't know, nice to connect in person. But it's been so nice talking to you across the interweb. Um, and honestly, yeah. thank you for your answers. They've been like really inspiring, really just thought-provoking and um, so much food for thought. And I've just really loved the conversation today. Thank you. Thank you very much. No, thank you. I enjoyed it a lot. Me too. Have a good evening. Cheers, cheers, man. Cheers. You too. (laughs) So this has been The Assurance Podcast, a follow-up to my documentary that explored the experiences of female DJs in Nigeria. Assurance, the documentary, focused on women in Lagos' music scene, but overall, Assurance is all about spotlighting voices away from the European and North American club scenes, which tend to dominate in conversations around gender and representation in music. And helping me share this empowering conversation have been Adidas and Zalando, who sponsored this podcast as part of their Step Into You campaign.